What's up guys, welcome to today's money. Thank you for listening, I appreciate you being here. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, there's a link for that in the description. And if you wanna jump right into the podcast, skip the next 30 seconds of ad space. Cool, right there, that's it, Steve. Thank you, that was awesome, man. Like so much yeah. good information. Yeah, that's about the best talk I think I've ever had. I've, really, I've done, that's awesome. I've done a few of these with the, with the heavy hitters and that was one of the best, I mean, that was really, I enjoyed it. All right, everybody, welcome back. I appreciate your time today. I've got a very, very special guest. Steve Burns is here and we are gonna jump right in. So Steve, before we go at my specific questions that we were speaking about just a few minutes ago with the Darvis method and starting your blog and writing your books, could you just give maybe the one person who lives under a rock that's listening that doesn't know who you are, could you give like a 50,000 foot view of you and your career and your experience in trading? Yeah, my name is uh, Steve Burns. I have uh, been involved with the stock market really starting back as a teenager looking at compound growth tables and how capital grows over time. And I thought, huh, if I start this young enough, I can grow my capital to an astounding amount and I can retire at a very young age. So a lot of my life was optimized for uh, financial independence and the stock market and trading, investing and uh, growing my money over the years until my money worked for me. And uh and allowed me to not ever have to work again. So that's been my journey. Uh, I was more into investing in the 90s. I was a big uh, investor in tech, tech stocks, tech mutual funds, and really thought that was the future. And I was I had a lot of beginner's luck because that was in the 90s, a very good place and very good thing to do. I learned some hard lessons in March of 2000 as the incredible amount of money that I had made uh, for me at the time. Uh, you know, by the time I was uh, 27, I, I account equal to what my house payoff payoff was in tw at 27 years old, but I had a 50% drawdown on that. And then I had to really learn a lot of lessons and I was ready by the 2003-2007 bull market to really have another run up compounding capital and uh, making some good money. And this time I learned to get out of the market and go to cash in 2008 and shift to lower, lower time frame. So I avoided the 2008 meltdown. And uh, then uh, since then I've been focused on trend following systems and uh, and uh, trading with an edge. So it's been an amazing, fun journey. Other people love sports. Uh, I've loved uh, the stock market and trading all these years. And I've had quite an adventure, which I started sharing uh, about uh, 10 years ago online with uh, followers. Now, Holly is also a big piece of your business, right? Could you tell us a little bit about how she's involved? Yes, yeah, uh, we've been married now for about six years. Uh, she is actually from the tech world. She actually worked at a software company when we met. Uh, and she had some incredible. Yeah, half of New Trader U is Holly. She is the uh, real writer. I'm just a trader. She's the one that translates my trading books into English. And, uh, yep, I'm Riley uh, for the same thing. That's what we do. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> you're another uh, team. It's amazing you have a business team like that. And uh, she uh, compliments all my weaknesses with her strength. And she's a, That's a anything partnership. Yeah, she was a yeah. web developer before. She worked for IBM. She was part of a train oh, learn. Right. She's oh, the one that was the e-course person because she worked with training and the first e-courses in some tech companies. So she retired as well a few years ago from her uh, career. So uh, yeah, we're just financially independent, and this is uh, all we do full time is trade and uh, and share things and create things. It's really an enjoyable life. And you've written like seventeen books now. Is that correct? Yes, about seventeen books. Yeah, I think it might be yeah, some more or less. Spanish translations and other publishers. I was going to say a couple of translations, a couple of PDFs out there that I'm sure, you know, go along with, right. So there's a lot out there, but 17 books is pretty impressive. But you said one thing that I do want to ask you about before we go a little bit for past that. In 2008, you said you switched to the lower time frame and you found that that helped you find success to get to cash, get out of some of your, what I would assume were bullish positions from 2003 to 2007. Is that correct? 
Yes, yes. I, I did do some day trading. I turned into a day trader for about a year. I was not the best lifestyle choice that I've ever had. So I, for me, I did go back to more swing trading over multiple days and some every now and then I'll still catch a trend for three or four weeks. But yeah, I definitely went to different time frames after uh, the 2008 meltdown and learned some new lessons. Was that because of volatility that like you yeah. found that it was safer to be on a shorter time frame in and out kind of thing? Yes, astounding. And my, my primary account, which I have my uh, retirement account, which I really haven't touched much uh, in the mm -hmm. last uh, years, I've just compounded. And uh, my taxable trading account, my taxable trading account did go to short time frames and some day trading, but primarily I went to cash in January of 2008. January 2008, I had a bunch of things. Went to cash and didn't start trading again in my uh, retirement account till March of 2009. I started getting long signals again, but oh, I did. Wow shift down in my actual uh, taxable trading account and get some day trading and experimenting with different things with, like you said, volatility, intraday volatility. And when you go back before 2008, and because that's where I, you said you applied a lot of the lessons you learned from the early 2000s, out of all of those lessons, you know, traders always have like the cliche, like, oh, be patient or, oh, follow my rules better. Was there anything in 2000 that really stuck out as you were like, this is my lesson and I am not going to repeat this mistake again? Was it just strictly to get to cash quicker? But like what more maybe specifically could you tell us about that? Yeah, it was drawdowns. You know, you can't drawdowns. get perma bullish. You know, I, I definitely can't say the perma bears since 2000 now, but being uh, since 2009, the perma bears thinking we're going to crash all the time, but there's also the perma bulls that, you know, you have an opportunity, you've made a killing, the NASDAQ's 5,000, and you don't lock in all those profits, and you start buying the downtrend and, and giving back money. It was really the downtrend and the string of losses, and I did not want to experience an equity drawdown like that again. And, uh, you know, I thought I'm going to get back to even, and when I did, I was never going to give it back. And I did eventually get what? back to even around 2004, 2005. And then you went forward from there. What what did you do to prevent the drawdown from happening again? Was it add rules? Was it less risk? Yeah, trailing up, yeah, position sizing, trailing stops, having profit targets, locking in profits. You know, not not buying into downtrends, knowing the difference between a pullback and a dip and a downtrend. You know, definitely not holding. I become the most. I was a strong holder with, you know, like the Bitcoiners are nowadays, high holding tech stocks and not thinking you're going to go higher. And it did work out really well, but it quit working around March 2000. And, uh, you know, I had to shift up. Yeah, but really risk management. You know, if I'm, I'm not going to, I'm only trading to make money. If I'm not making money, why am I going to trade? Exactly. So, and I feel like that probably ties into the Darvis me method and why it attracted you so much, because from what I've read about it, and that's very little compared to you, I'm sure, but it seems like it's a very bullish strategy. And a lot of people criticize it almost because they say it doesn't work in bear markets. So it seems like you kind of applied that right there. So when did you start the Darvis method? Was that during that time? No, I, no, I actually read his book years later, around 2005-ish. I was, uh, I got into okay. trading, trading books. I started really educating myself after the 2000, 2002 time period. I was, I read four, well over 400 investing and trading books uh, from wow. 2000 into uh, 2010. Like for a decade, I just read almost trading book a week, every week. And, wow. And That's I was one of the top, top trading book uh, reviewers on Amazon. And I kept seeing that book pop up, uh, How I Made $2 Million in the Stock Market. You know, first, like, That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. What a a bunch of crap. I thought it was, a, you know, somebody living and some bull crap. So uh, I ignored it so many times and I started seeing it pop up on blog articles and people talking about it. It kept popping up as recommended. I'll read some of the reviews. Like, what? You had to click it at some point. You're yeah. like, what am I missing? <laughs> I had to, had to buy it and read it. It ended up being one of my favorite books of all time because it was a true story that was audited that a guy really did back in the olden times with telegrams right. and 
$100 commissions. So uh, it really just changed me and affected my thought process. The story of how he started that method is he was go traveling around the country dancing. Is that true? And he was trading while he was traveling around the country? Yeah, with yes, with Telegram internationally and calling brokers uh, and, and sleeping Crazy. through the sleeping through the trading day and only trading uh, at, uh, after the market closed. So it, it's one of the first trend followers in history, really one of the very, very first ones right up there close to where Richard Donchian started it. When how do you take a method like that? Because someone's going to ask you at some point, Steve, if it worked back then, how do you know what works now? What do you say to people that ask you that? Yeah, and it works. It's very specific stocks it works on. It's not just, you know, a universal thing for everything. It has to be, you know, Darvis method, which also William J. O'Neill goes into the Cam Slim method and uh, even Jesse Livermore. It's a school of thought on trend following where you, you know, only so many stocks in the stock market create the alpha for the rest of the stock market. That's why the indexes work. And if you're if you have an Apple or a Monster Energy or an Amazon or a Tesla, you know, that's what the Darvis method works on, not just anything. So that's something that has to be filtered to the right thing and the right bull market as well. So when we see a correct, like whether you say we're in a recession now or not, that's not a, really the question. But when we see a pullback that we've seen over the last, let's just say, 90 days, right, the last three months, the volatility plus the pullback, do you tend to turn away from trading in times like this just because it isn't that trending bull market that you'd like to see? You'd rather wait for that to come back? Yeah, well, I have multiple systems. The Darvis methodology is one of many. I mean, I have a diversified sure. signals and systems just like I have diversified watch lists. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, Darvis, uh, his watch is basically the 52-week highs and the all-time highs. It's basically Darvis's watch list. And uh, people don't know, he did write about five other books. So he does really? go into more detail. And the publisher, they're actually, they were out of uh, copyright, you know, out of, uh, so a uh, publisher that actually republished all of his books. I'd reviewed them all on Amazon. So that's one of my first books I ever wrote. Was uh, was him asking me to write one? Like, man, you've read all these books and you've traded for all these years. Why did you not write your own Darvis book? So, uh, so that's why it really got me started in book writing. I thought, why me write a book on trading, huh? How did you like? How did you overcome? I'm sure because when you're a trader and then they tell you to go write a book, how did you <laughs> make yourself comfortable with that? Uh, yeah, at first it's like a great idea. So, well, I, I love reading books, and uh, you know that's the next logical step. One of my dreams, uh, very young, was to write some books on success. You know, write books. I mean, uh, that was I've read thousand nonfiction books. So, I mean, how many more book? How many books can I read when I start writing? So, uh, yeah, it was right, a lot right. harder in reality than uh, than uh, sounds like. But yeah, the the proof because back then, you know, the publisher paid for the uh, co the proofreading and the grammar. Boy, it was I got chewed out by the. Uh, by the uh, proofreader, and I had to suffer through that. You know, Holly uh, is a little bit nicer, not a lot nicer, but a little bit nicer on the proofreading and editing and grammar part of it. When you go through that and you sit down to write a book as a trader, what are some of the biggest issues that you came in? I mean, of course, like you and I probably are not the best um, sentence people to structure <laughs> sentences or use proper grammar and things like that. But other than the grammar and the technical, did you ever struggle like generating ideas or maybe how did you even come up with the ideas to go at each book? Because I remember when you and I originally started speaking a, a while ago on Twitter, I asked you one of my first questions was like, do you have any advice for somebody that's trying to get a book on Amazon and write a book? You were like, yeah, don't write it until you've got the next couple planned. Now, that's only advice that you can give me because it's in hindsight. So how did you push through and then like look back to realize that now? Yeah, when I first, the Darvis book is something I was fascinated in, so I mean, it's, it's funny that it teaches you when you have to collect your thoughts, structure them, 
system ties them, you know, write table contents and write a structure. It really helps you learn more. It's like writing a term paper in college, uh, you know, so it does right. help me. Some of my best trading happened after I wrote my first option book. My best option trading happened right after it. That's why my best years happened right after publishing a new trade risk trade. It's funny how you learn is I learned as much from writing and structuring and concrete solidifying my thoughts. You know, making me put it on paper is a very good exercise to do. So it actually helps. A lot me of people say you book. learn from teaching. A lot of yes, people so. say that, that you can actually learn from teaching, learn from writing it down. So that makes a lot of sense. I feel the yeah, same one way. Of the best ways to, one of the best ways to learn something is to teach yourself. You know, create a class teaching what you want to learn. That's a, one of the best things I use my ecosystem for is a, the deep diving I have to do where things that I think I know in my head, but then when you have to explain it, it really uh, solidifies what your thoughts totally are, makes you learn. <laughs> yes. It's very different. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and I, I, I'm sure you could uh, relate to this. When you try to explain something, that you really know well, like when you know it, like the front and the back of your hand, you've been doing it for five, 10 years, and you try to explain it to someone that knows nothing, you are like, wait, I just went way over your head. So let me just get somebody else to fill in this spot and they can tell you, because if I try to talk to you, I'm just gonna, you know what I mean? Talk you into 17 circles. Actually what happened with me when I would explain to people what Forex was, I would just go too technical. I would blow them out of the water if they've never heard of Forex before because it's a relatively new thing on the retail side. So I would always have Riley come in and explain to people what it is. Now, I've gotten a lot better with it and I don't let Riley speak for me anymore in that sense. But at first I could understand that where there is that barrier. So when you wrote these books, how do you put yourself in the reader's position to relate to the writing? Yeah, the, the new, my new Trader Richard books, one of the few, I just had a passion to write that after reading so many hundreds of books and going through all the mistakes and process and learning and successes and drawdowns and, and, and winning. And, and uh, you know, I really had a passion to do that. And it really helped me because I could be the new trader and the successful trader, like what I learned and my most successes. And it was like having a the old me talking to the young me and being able to teach myself what I had learned and, you know, through reading and experience. So yeah, it was a very cathartic process to do that and to actually summarize the 18 principles. Like, what's the 18 principles I've slipped to myself at 17 years old and be able to solidify the book? That was one of my most enjoyable processes in uh, trading to be able to do that. Like you said, have a narrative. That's what I found the New Trader Richard 1 and 2 was the narrative concept was may help people so much more than just, uh, you know, spitting out facts for 100 pages. Why do you think so, that is? Why do you think the information yeah. sticks better in that frame? I think people, everybody, I have so many hundreds of messages I relate to at the new trader thing, talking about the stress and trading too big and wanting to win and, and the drawdown and thinking it's easy money and, and not understanding sure. you have to have a process and the reality of trading, uh, especially any kind of size versus the theory of trading or the you know, back testing or theoretically believing something versus putting real money at risk and losing real money and even making real money is a totally different right. process psychologically. Definitely. You know, it's like playing NFL, playing a Madden NFL football than going and getting an NFL game are two different situations, you know, or having a, having shooting a target and shooting at somebody that's shooting at you is just totally right. different psychological process. <laughs> Way different. When you speak, I know a lot of your books, some are more tactical, some are more focused on that psychological aspect. What do you see new traders? Cause I'm sure you get a ton of messages more than me. What's the most common thing across any market that you see new traders struggling with? Gosh, opinion versus quantification. You know, people just want to believe something. They want to believe, oh, it's they time want to, to be buy right more than they want to make money, right? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they think, yeah, they think it's a predictive process versus a reactive process or a quantified process. And 
and uh, they think quants are some kind of magical beings and they just think and i think i know the future i know what's going to happen and you know if anybody knew they think that's how it works you're a predictor you know what's going to happen if you do that you'd be a billionaire very very quickly and uh, right. you know very few traders are billionaires i mean it's a process of having a quantified system with an edge trading it with discipline with the right risk management and you know you have some big wins and some small losses and you make money over time that's what it really is the small losses, I think, is what throws people off, too. And I remember you had one of the first posts that made me really see that, which I think you said the four ways your trade should end up, and one of them was a small loss. Most people end up holding on to those losers, I think, too long, especially a lot of new traders don't even trade with stop losses. But I feel like that all goes into that plan and that system. And you said that you have such a diverse system that it kind of allows you to stay adaptive no matter what condition the market is in. Is that correct? Yeah, I want to be a swing. I mean, there'll be markets that go sideways. I have to swing trade. There'll be markets that go sure. straight up. I'll have to trend trade, and I'm going to let my signal. I try to structure my signals. Like coming off of this recent low, I had some 520 crossover signals and certain stocks that backtested well. So I took some 520 crossovers early on. It worked out really well. You know, then I started getting sure. some 1050 crossovers. Those also backtested well in those stocks. You know, I had some winners, some stopped out for small losses, but I had a great month because and that was my plan. I wasn't trying to predict the bottom or call the bottom. I had a quantum signals that would get you back in specific stocks when those signal and indexes when they triggered and it worked out well just like in the meltdown i got stopped out of things and uh and i got i got stopped at what i was in with trailing stops my mate locked in some profits and i got stopped out with losses and then some some the first dips didn't work where they they bounced but they reversed and then the volatility escalated and they just told me to go to cash and stay there so i mean it's just that's what trading really is or at least for me no that that no, that makes 100% sense. You actually have mentioned already today a lot of the other hedge fund big traders over, you know, Jesse Livermore, Paul Tudor Jones that I was just talking about earlier to you. Like some of these big guys, you've studied a lot of them. Did the idea of having that system and that set of rules come from studying them, or did you see that elsewhere? Because some of those guys, their approach to risk is very, very different. But you've studied a lot of them. So where did that come? Where did that idea of finding a system come from? Yeah, a lot of it came come from several people that talk about it. Larry Height. Uh, I actually got to write a blurb for the back of his new book. Uh, that was a, a, was awesome. a moment. And uh, Ed Sakota, uh, he's real buddies with my, Michael Covell, one of my friends, uh, Ed Sakota. It's fascinating, people at those levels where, uh, you know, I heard uh, Ed Sakota gave a private uh, coaching to a guy I knew on Facebook, and he started messaging me saying, hey, man, I just had a coaching by Ed Sakota, which is one of my personal heroes, like the Yoda of trading legend. And sure, he told sure. him he, he told him, you know, buy Apple when it breaks out this many days. I don't know what it, I don't remember exactly what it was. If break out an Apple breakout of a twenty day high or something and then sell it when it goes below a ten days low, something even longer than that. I thought, that's crazy. How could that be Ed Dakota's system? And uh, and then I thought it was I thought it was crazy. I think I hate to disagree with that Dakota, but I don't wonder he didn't back test it. I don't understand how that works. And by God, yeah, that yeah. worked. He told me that before the big uh, explosion in Apple a couple of years ago, and it's like my Gosh, that was a good trading strategy. And he doesn't even gotta trade wonder, stocks. Gotta wonder, what does he know? He doesn't trade That's stocks. Crazy. He trades futures and commodities. <laughs> and he come out with a system on top of his head. That's nuts. So, yeah. But what, how, do, how do you think that – is that just being in tune with the markets? Like some of these guys are just naturals. Like they're just born to do this, and that's why they reach that B and that, tr that T. I think the one common variable I see with Paul Tudor Jones, Jesse Livermore, which you know he had his own psychological problems – and risk management problems with position size, but you know, with Larry Hyde, that's a code. What I see the in Paul, the common denominator is a risk reward ratio. If you have small losses and you have big wins or small wins and you have some giant wins every now and then, you're going to make money. That's what it comes down to risk reward ratio. 
there's like a positive expectancy system. If you have a 50-50 win rate, if you just flip the coin and you made $200 on heads and you lost $100 on tails, two for one risk reward ratio on a coin flip, 50% of the time, you make money. And that's what it really all boils down to across all the other narrative and system building and quantifications. That's what it's about. How do you play win rate into that? Because win rate plays a part of your expectancy, right? It's not just your two to one, because like you just said, you need to, you can't do two to one in a 20% win rate strategy, right? So it has to kind of go mm -hmm. hand in hand. And that, that paints the picture of expectancy overall, correct? Yes, absolutely. You have to have the right, you know, the bigger the the, the outlying win, the smaller your win rate has to be. Also, the position sizing to survive, you know, the if you have, you know, your win rates, also going to see what your your losing streaks are going to be, depending on what your win rate is. So can you survive five, six, seven win losses in a row? So your position sizing has to let you, let you survive your drawdowns and your losing streaks sure, sure. to get through it, to get to the big wins and the winning streaks. Right. Positive expectancy. Right. I actually followed, uh, I follow a guy on Twitter, you probably do, his name is Sang Lucci, and he was the one that really gave me the idea of like, you have to know when your market is on and know when the market is off. And something that I've kind of really internalized over the last year is being patient and being able to wait for higher quality setups. And part of that was being able to give language to setups that I could read risk reward, but mm -hmm. weren't necessarily high quality setups because of other things that I saw technically. So for me, I've actually, implemented a way of separating risk management in my mind, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. I've looked at it as two separate pieces, one being trade management, which is what you do while the trade is on, how you move your stop, how you close your position, how you adjust, like, and maybe whether it's working for you or against you, that would be like the trade management, but the decisions that you make before the trade, the size and the quality, I actually grade my trades. That I think mm -hmm. can almost be looked at as a separate bucket. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's like uh, your risk reward ratio when you enter. You have your you have your, you enter your, your like you said your trade entry. You have your risk reward ratio. What is the potential of your profit target, which you're open to? You could even have bigger than that. If it goes parabolic, you'll let it keep running with a trailing stop. You have your stop loss. Well, I'm going to admit I'm wrong here. I'm going to let it run to. This is where I think my reward is. So my risk should be where my stop loss is. I'm going to position size so my percentage of loss in my account will keep me in the game if I have a losing streak of five, seven, ten losing streak, which will happen in almost every trading right. system. Right. And then, uh, but right. that's your entry. Then, like you said, it's almost like you collapse the probabilities. Once you're in a trade, just like you buy an at the money option, it has a 50 delta. But as the option moves, your probabilities change and it gets more delta. If it goes in the money, the probability changes, plus your risk reward dynamic changes. If you enter an oversold market and it rallies to overbought, your risk reward ratio right. has shifted then, so you shift them over. But I completely agree. Trade management is one of the most important things you could do after your initial entry of risk reward ratio before you have you, your probabilities change while you're in a trade and you have to move your stop loss to a trailing stop. You have to say, my profit target's been hit. Do I, is there a reason to get out? Is it showing a reversal here? Is it going into resistance? So I 100% agree with you. Those are the two steps. Do you, I, I actually heard a really interesting concept this year and I've been trying to work it into my system a little bit. I'm like slow with it because I want to test it, but it's the guy termed it as regressive risk. And basically what he was doing was saying, if I go in at a 10 lot and I have a stop loss in, I don't want to get hit at that stop loss with the full 10 lot position basically. So what he's doing is he's found signals that he can build in to piece him out of the trade if it isn't working in his favor. Do you do anything like that, like regressive risk, or do you take the full stop, full stop? 
I, I over time I have pyramided into winning trades during monster monster bull markets. You know, it breaks the 200-day moving sure. average, it keeps going. Then you break the 50-day or 100-day moving. Then I had I've done some pyramiding, not a lot. I mainly minor in and out trades for the most part, but but absolutely it's viable. I mean, I know some of the best trades I know use regret minimization frameworks where they're selling into a winner. They're exiting uh, in stages out of a loser, and there are you know a lot of different stages where people trade uh, half out if they're first reversal they start worrying about it, or they're half out on their first profit target. So it's a regret minimization framework. It's really a psychological framework that helps you uh, you know not regret as much. If it does keep running, you're going to have a piece on. If it does fall farther, you're already half out. So it's a good psychological framework. It's a valid. I don't use it very much except for pyramiding into winners at times, but uh, it's it's absolutely valid. Do you find that pyramiding into those winners, those trades where you do get multiple confirmations and you can add in, do you see that being able to identify that is almost more, is I would say not more valuable, but just as valuable as being able to know what trades you should not be in, where you might have an inclination in a direction, but then you see something that, you know what, this isn't exactly what I should see. Let me move over here. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I watch it like you said. Watch it very closely as it evolves. You know, if you have a strong bullish breakout of a first signal, whether it's a break back over a 30 RSI, I might say, okay, it's not oversold anymore. In reverse, I'm in. Okay, I got a 520 crossover. I'm going to add to it. Yeah, I mean, watching how it evolves and it, it keeps you being so you don't think you're a genius. You're going to nail it. You have a, some exactly. Leeway. Then you're trying to forecast almost, but if you're watching it, you're reacting to it as it's progressing and as it's moving. Not saying, oh, it's going to go parabolic. You would rather say it did go parabolic and that probably goes into the same way you build your if then statements for your trades as well right where you're kind of planning out if this happens then i will react this way yeah exactly that especially if i'm trying to build a big position right after a bear market that's what i had to do coming out sure. of our 2011 and the 2009 sure. where i you do need to have the option of pyramiding into a winner because you don't, when the bear market ends that's one of the best times to make money in any market after you've had a reversion to the mean and you're at, at more of a statistical historical value and when it does come come back the, the it's weird how the math works against you when you're if you're long something goes down 50 percent you know in a bear market you're crushed like a stock goes down 50 percent you have to have it double to get back to even but if you buy when it reverses off the lows of 50 percent and it goes back to where it was you're up uh, one you're up 100 percent i mean you double right. so the math of the losses is so crazy when you really look at how much better you will do uh, be on the right side of that math and not letting yourself have a gigantic drawdown that you have to spend a long time digging out of. That's one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned the hard way. And that, that was probably during that 2000 period, I would say? <laughs> the first, yes. <laughs> so, so do you sit in the boat of a higher win rate and not needing as big of a risk-reward ratio? Or are you a Paul Tudor Jones, I want to win one out of five because it's going to win way bigger than anything else. I'm going to lose the other four small. Yeah, I've always psychologically liked a 50 to 60% win rate. That's about, I do not feel comfortable with, I hate the losing streaks and I hate the four or five losses in a row. Too. I do not like it psychologically. So I do better with a 50 to 60% win rate, which is about my historical norm and about a three to one risk reward ratio that works out over time. And generally on yeah. average, I have about a two for one reward to risk ratio for the most part. I might lose two, 2%, 3%, 4% of stock, but I might make 4%. 9%, 12% of the right. stock, but, you know, I do have it now that I'll have a dinger where I get hit for 10% down on a big uh, fall individual stock. That's about the biggest I get, a 10% loss on a 10% position size, about a 1% total equity loss. 
So that's not sure, a big deal. Sure. But every now and then I'll have a 25, 30, 35% winner on some big speculative stock. And that really makes my, sometimes right. makes my year, makes my month. And uh, that's, so I love those big winners, but I do have some give backs with trailing stops. We're looking for those and winners, I, but we, I love the big winners. We're so similar. It's crazy because for what I've moved into over the last few years is very, very similar. 50, 60% with about two to one, three to one. And I find that for the way I manage my trades now, once I'm up over 2R, 2 to 1, I'm normally locking my stop, closing some of the trade and making sure I don't give anything back just because of the volatility. And I find that people will come to me and they'll say, Austin, if you keep doing that and you keep getting stopped in profit, you're going to screw up your risk reward over time. Now, I'm not a mathematician, Steve. I dropped out of college, <laughs> right? I couldn't pass accounting. But I, and I, so I don't argue with the people to fight them and say, well, this is the math, this is the math. But what I do point to them and say is, look, it's been consistent for me and that's the most important thing. But number two, what it's allowing me to do is it makes sure that psychologically I'm not taking more losses than I want to where you're up in a trade and then it comes against you and you take that loss, that sucks. And by doing that, you know, closing some of the trade, locking the stop and giving it space to continue, I'm able to take advantage of some of those huge rips like you're talking about. So how important is it to, find for some of the new guys that are listening to this on YouTube and on, how do you how do you guide them almost to say you need to find a system that fits who you are because you and I like we just found out are very similar but some people are Paul Tudor Jones and they will take six losses for that one 10 to one winner you know what I'm saying yeah the, the psychology of trading people underestimate that just like if you made a fortune as a lawyer if you hated your job and hated going in and was and didn't like to talk to juries you couldn't be a lawyer like a trader the best trading system is the one you can follow with discipline that is psychologically comfortable enough for you to operate in you can't trade if you don't like sitting at a screen for eight hours a day you know you can't be a day trader if you can't if you can't hold a position and you get too nervous then you can't be a swing trader you know, but you have to find what fits your personality. You know, that's the thing is like I always tell everybody when they come at me, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're messaging me and I say, you have to find a quantified trading system with an edge that fits your personality and time frame that you can trade with discipline with the right position sizing over the long term. And that, and that, that's, that's it. That's, that's successful trading. And, uh, and a lot of it applies to investing systems as well. Warren Buffett does what he loves to do. Paul Tudor Jones does what he he can do. And they're all billionaires, and they're almost completely parallel. Like Marty Schwartz was a day trader and uh, and made a fortune day trading. And uh, uh, and you know Jim Rogers was an investor and made a fortune investing. And both couldn't do what the other one does. And they're both billionaire, uh, both well, wealthy. In their own right. So you have to find what works for you. And and. For people, I guess, that are searching, you, you emphasize the quantitative aspect. The This needs to have defined rules. This needs to have some testing. This needs to have substance to it, not just, oh, I'm trading at resistance. I'm going to sell it every time it hits resistance, right? Yeah, you have to have an edge. It's got to be either risk-reward ratio is your edge, your uh, your size of wins are an edge, your even investors have some type of an edge and they're investing with their – even their even Warren Buffett has a risk-reward sure. ratio and buys sure. certain discounted future cash flows. You know, and you already have a back-tested system that you it worked in the past, so it has an edge. You know, back-tested system doesn't guarantee it's going to work in the future, but if you think you have a system you want to trade and you back-test them, it doesn't work, then you're pretty darn hard to sure it's not going to work in the future. It didn't work in the past. There's no reason for it to. So you have to establish what is your edge. And if yeah, you don't absolutely. have an edge, no amount of psychology and position sizing and risk management will help you if you do not have an edge to begin with. But it's crazy because… It's hard to find the edge, I feel like, especially in, in the crowded space of 
trading education on the internet. And a lot of it is so regurgitated and it's almost like a lot of, sometimes I see bad information being spread around, but I feel like once you find the edge and you find a quantitative system and you can actually put it to work, then you get to the point exactly what you said that you realize it is all in here. Like literally, once you have that quantitative system, you need to master yourself if you're gonna make this you know, a six, seven, eight figure business in the long run. You can't do that. If you can't get the psychology up to par, I feel like you'll never reach your full potential. Do you agree? Yeah, Alexander Elder had the best thing in his book. He really taught me the three M's of trading, uh, money management, uh, mind, and method. And he says, you know, it's, the trading has a three-legged stool. There's uh, you have to manage your mind, your money, and your method. Any one of those missing, your stool will fall over. Like Richard Dennis like said he could. <laughs> Richard Dennis said he could uh, publish his rules in a newspaper. And Richard Dennis was before he had his big losses later on. He was worth over hundred million dollars. A turtles uh, mentor, wow. and he said he could publish all yeah, his yeah. rules in a newspaper, and it wouldn't matter because nobody could follow them, and they would give a drawdown and quit. I mean, and he's one of the greatest uh, modern traders uh, through the turtle system. And Jack Swager said that. Yeah, 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 oh yeah, because please, please, please. Yeah, I give people uh, you know, there's all kinds of systems in books that crush buy and hold, and the you know, most mutual fund managers can't be buy and hold, but who could follow it over the long term? Uh, well, then Jack Swager, I think Jack Swager once said, uh, you know, there's endless ways to make money in the markets, but they're all hard to find. It's and the, even if you find them, because, can you? Yeah, yeah, and and I feel like that feeds into the. That's human psychology, and that's kind of I, – I totally agree that you could publish a lot of systems. There's are, there are systems published. That's why even as I create content now and try to put out more stuff on the internet, I tell people, like, it's never just my way. I never want it to just be my way. Go find all of these other resources out there, but make sure they are quantitative. Make sure they are tested. When you studied all of those traders, what have you found – I know you said you, you already shared, like, the common characteristic that you've seen. What have you found seems to hold some of those – big traders back, Marty, Paul, what holds them back, if anything? Oh, gosh, they still, uh, I think a lot of them went on. Paul Tudor Jones still said after he was a billionaire, he spends every day you know, thinking everything he's done is wrong, and he's just, they stay humble. I remember one of the uh, Marty Schwartz, so he made some killing in the market. I mean, just crazy returns, and and he didn't lock in his profits. He just let it run into the market closed, and it just dumped on him right at the end of the close, and he gave it all back. Wow. Uh, and, and so wow. many returns. And almost every one of them, Nicholas Darvis, Alexander Elder, Jesse Livermore, even the ones that made millions, they all had at least a 50% drawdown, if not a blow up early on. Like they all had to learn that it's uh, it's about a uh, systematic process in the long term and they don't know the future. Are you in the boat that everybody has to blow up at least once? <laughs> you got to blow an account. You got to take a 50% drawdown if you're going to become successful. Do you believe that's true? I'm trying to think of anybody I know that didn't. I think Paul Tudor Jones was almost – he's the best risk manager and the most consistent trader of the, the last 40 years, and even he almost had a cotton trade that destroyed him early on. Yeah, I don't I know. I do remember. That was in his documentary. I, yeah. I remember seeing about that. Yep. Yeah, that was almost the end of me, and I thought, do I want to be happier or do I want to try to be right? I, I don't think there's anybody I know that ever didn't have at least a 50% or blow up. So, yeah, I would think it's, it's almost – it doesn't have to be. I'm sure there will be some young business person coming up that doesn't have the ego problems and does his homework and understands somehow learns from other people's stories. But I don't – I've not heard of that person yet. I have a theory it's going to be a woman, not a man. That's my theory. <laughs> it's a very good theory. I think I just it, what, what's your opinion on that? Why do you think there's not a lot of female traders? Do you think that they're just turned off by like the alpha, the ego? They don't do things for money like men do. Yeah, so Linda Roshke in her books, you know, she's gonna be one of her. She's so uh, famous. 
Yeah, she sent me one of her uh, newest books, uh, Trading Sardines, that she self-published, and it's fascinating that she even said that. Like, just women, it's just like sports. A lot of women, whatever, for whatever reason, uh, stereotypically, a lot of women don't like sports. A lot of women don't like the financial market. It's not their thing. They like other types of uh, of business and operations just wired a little bit differently, probably physiologically. But uh, that's what Linda Roski herself, you know, I just – some women in business management said uh, they they themselves say it's not some women just don't like that they're more nurturers and caregivers and and uh, a lot of their times they're more intelligent and they have they don't have the ego problems we have and and uh, just over a uh, you know not uh, stereotyping but just uh, my personal experience so yeah it's just it's odd that a lot of women do not choose that uh, course it is. that they do outperform I've seen studies where women traders outperform men. Oh, absolutely. I literally, so I filmed a Q&A video a couple of days ago when we were in Florida and it just went up on my channel today. And I was, I don't know the statistics, but I, I made a claim. I'm like, somebody who's listening, fact check me. But I believe that if you compared percentage wise, women to men, women would outperform men, but there's way more men that go into trading and try it and fail. So yeah, I mean, that it, it makes sense. And I also, I find that while the women can be nurturing and they have those characteristics, the ones that do come into trading like Linda, I think that they have skills that men have that, that you would call it the same word but they do it better when you tell a woman to be disciplined and follow these rules they're better at not letting ego come back in and and, and act for them they really follow the rules a lot better in my experience would you agree yeah, it seems, seems like historically women don't have the same issues with asking for directions back in the 1980s <laughs> we had to stop and ask for directions they had no trouble doing that while men like want to find it themselves for whatever reason right but that's that is the ego of man, right? I mean that that'll be the death of man at some point, probably too. Because and and then we'll have a whole world run by women because they'll all just make logical decisions while all of us are all trying to swallow our ego. <laughs> Must be the testosterone or something. Exactly, yeah, exactly what it is. Um, but as we're coming to the end of this, I wanted to just ask you one thing about your blog. Can you kind of share with us what? Um, inspired you to get on the internet and start talking about trading and what after that initial inspiration, what has kept you going to get it to the point where your numbers now are crazy? <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I started, I actually wrote a book first from a publisher that they said, hey, had the idea to write a book about the Darvis method because I'd read so I read them all and, and reviewed them all and had success with it. But uh, it was 2011, uh, a guy I knew, a friend I had that he, he launched around the octagon. Uh, he was the MMA uh, side. He did really well with it. He ended up selling it. Uh, I think he actually bought it back. And he was getting into dating back, what was it, 2010, 2011, you know, and he was actually a day trader in the 2000s. But uh, he said, I, you know, I need to have a blog, a website. Why would I have a website? And he's like, do you understand the opportunity in the website? And he kind of explained to me the opportunity, which, you know, the 2000, it was an incredible opportunity. People become wealthy creating websites. So he said, well, you need to share what you know. You know, blog, you would be, you know, you write all these, I wrote all these reviews on Amazon for all these books. They're there. There are, I have a thousand reviews of books on Amazon that I wrote, uh, trading and other things he sure. said why don't you write on your own blog so it's your own material your own content and he right. taught me into right. it and built it for me and gave it to me and i didn't quite get get it and uh, you know because i'm really big in the, the effort you know spending your time wisely getting return on your time and energy and effort so sure. i believe sure. it so so he taught me into it that's what that's how it started then i actually started enjoying it and liking it and because uh, i'd already liked social media i enjoyed going on and uh, i was Facebook friends with a lot of authors, trading authors and traders because we'd email back and forth. So when I first signed up for Facebook, uh, I got all these, I found all these other traders. So that's where it all started. I got to be friends with them all on Facebook and, um, and it just, it blew up and the blogs are being popular and it actually was cathartic and I got to put my stuff down. So I went more from writing book reviews to uh, my own blog and that's how it all started. And it just grew. And I've always loved Facebook and, uh, 
Twitter were my ideas for the most part, but uh, the books and the blog and the e-core, that was all other people's ideas that told me I should do it. And I didn't really get it. (laughs) So that was all. I I can relate to that completely. I had my first live seminar back in November and I was not planning on doing it as soon as we did, but people wanted it. So it's like if the people demanded, if they tell you you're good at something, step into it, Steve, take the blog. Let's go. You love writing. You love reading. No, let's go. I feel like that's into your lab and you know as you were answering that question you got me thinking and i think this is a really good final question to for us to wrap up on here so as someone who has experience with i wouldn't call them emerging markets but new markets you traded through the dot-com through technology basically being developed you were one of the first guys who was a trader on facebook and twitter which is why you have such a massive community you've been in it from the jump so you've seen technology kind of grow so you've seen the compounding effect of it i'm sure So when you look at markets that are new and upcoming, for example, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, does that look to you, does does cryptocurrency as a whole look to you similar to what the internet did in the early 2000s? Could this become its own whole market? Yeah, I see a lot of correlation with the internet and people like all the dot-com era thinking the internet was going to change everything and the internet was going to be the – it was the same thing with the PERMA – uh, uh, pets.com permables and uh, you know everybody thinking that you know Amazon was going to change the future and toys.etoys.com and and all of those uh, ones that went to zero and went bankrupt right. and it was like and they were right they were 20 years early maybe at least 10 years early on a lot of them but because uh, Amazon was still at 70 back in like 2008 2009 I mean and it went yep. it went up yep. and it went down 96 97 percent then it was the winner but it's the timing of it all. If you're right about something, your timing has to be right or you might as well be wrong. And the internet people, the permables were right. You know, me investing in all those uh, tech companies were right. I did lock in a lot of my profits during my 50% drawdown, but uh, mm-hmm. it's the timing. But like for this, for a correlation of this, it could be that the blockchain technology is the breakthrough. Like the internet was a breakthrough, not necessarily pets.com, not necessarily sure. broadcast.com or a navigator it was the, it's the blockchain and whatever you know and whether bitcoin doesn't seem to be scalable as a means of transaction and if they right. have a whatever blockchain could eventually have a global currency that everybody accepts that's uh that's valued against something else uh, and it could be the winner so but bitcoin, that's what it looks like from what i understand about it not a crypto yeah. expert and, that, that uh, makes sense most, no that makes a lot of sense because then you would have bitcoin as being one of these companies that could come and go or it could be the amazon and it comes and it goes forever you know what i mean we see the 100k whatever it is it, it's not like bitcoin is the internet bitcoin is more like a company on the, that, that, that's a really good comparison i feel like the other thing i don't you know, crypto it's currencies they're cryptocurrencies they're not crypto companies so the growth right, right. that comes from a company growing you, if currency doesn't grow even though there's a set amount of bitcoins they're lost and they're gone forever and sure. uh, government can crush any moment and it's not you can't call bitcoin.com if you lose all your money right. on bitcoin or somebody puts it they say oh you can't be stolen so i put a gun to your head and they can make you transfer it and it's gone forever so i don't understand right. that's like they are religious zealots for for Bitcoin as if when the internet was, but, uh, you know, we will, somebody will win. I think there will be a global cryptocurrency blockchain based, uh, however it works, but it'll be more modern. Uh, the technology for Bitcoin may already be antiquated and there may be something else coming. I thought Facebook had a pretty uh, cool idea with what they were doing with, in with Ripple. Libra. Yeah. Libra oh, was Ripple. great. Yeah. Ripple of some very interesting ideas to see how it all washes out. But it'll be interesting if something will be one day like PayPal will be some kind of a crypto where everybody will accept it. It'll be backed by a trusted source. It'll be recoverable if they're lost. 
and it'll be fast and speedy access. And uh, I think something will be big. I, I don't know if Bitcoin's that. It just doesn't seem to right. me to be a functional means. And plus, it's not a company. It's a cryptocurrency. It's a fiat cryptocurrency. They say all the fiat currency is worthless by the governments. The U.S. dollar is backed by the U.S. government and the U.S. military. So it is backed right. by something. Bitcoin's backed by nothing. So it is a fiat right. cryptocurrency. So I don't understand the value. And I, and I don't understand, like, you wouldn't be buying Forex thinking the U.S. dollar is going to go to to be worth 100,000 right. yen. So right. why do you think a Bitcoin is going to be worth $100,000? I don't – I do not understand the valuation of a fiat crypto. I just don't understand it. No, and, and that makes a lot of sense, honestly. Do you think that the – comparison of Bitcoin to a company isn't, like you said, it's not accurate. Maybe Bitcoin to gold, would that be a little bit more accurate since they're both finite? And it's instead of just like you said, Bitcoin doesn't grow, gold doesn't grow. It just changes in value because of the market, to sell, like the, us, because of us basically, right? Yeah, it's speculation. It's a pure 100% speculation with no underlying intrinsic right. value, just like an, an option contract. You know, you don't, sure. the value is based on the utility and what really what somebody will pay for. Bitcoin's worth 8000 because somebody will give you 8000 for a Bitcoin. And and what's shocking to me, people think they'd be rich if they could have gotten Bitcoin early. So many of the, they're so, it's unregulated. So, so many of those, uh, like, what is it, Mount Gov and other brokers were all frauds. And even if you would have got Bitcoin early, you still would have lost it all because it was a fraud for the, for the broker. Fraud, right. It's scary. It's scary stuff. And then what I, what I kind of, I made a video about this too. It just, it kind of freaks me out a little bit when Paul Tudor Jones comes on the TV, they put it all over the mainstream media that he has 2% of his assets in Bitcoin. That's a couple hundred million dollars for him, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, I think that that translates over to people on the main street and they're saying, well, Paul Tudor Jones is buying it. I got to get a hold of it. So it, I think that there's, there's the people who look at it as like a hedge against inflation, like it could become gold. But then there's a lot of people that I think take your side of it, that it's like, this is just fiat crypto. Like this isn't anything new really, you know, except for the fact, I guess they would say that it's decentralized. But if we are going into a technological age where they're going to have 5G everywhere, scanning our faces, you're not even going to need your phone anymore, really. Who's, why would we have cash? Like, are you going to, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? If we're going into this technological world that everybody thinks that we are, it's very clear at this point, why would you even need cash? So we, it seems like at some point it has to go to a digital asset that whether it's global or national, I don't know, but I think that I agree with you hundred percent. It will be some type of digital asset. Do you think that they'll convert cash to like a, a fed coin and it would be like your cash can be turned into fed dollars. And then eventually over time, there would just be no more cash. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Just like what Facebook was trying to do and they'll you know, link it to a basket of currencies. That was pretty well, the best concept I've seen yet. But yeah, you're right that uh, other countries could launch their own cryptocurrency and but make it a much better user experience than Bitcoin. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and what Paul Tudor Jones, he said clearly it's a speculation. You know, Paul yes. Tudor Jones probably would have bought tulips in Holland and uh, sold right. them when they went up 25% and moved on with his right. life. He wouldn't have been saying tulips are the future and tulips are going to sure. $100,000. He would have just – he might be buying Bitcoin. His exit strategy might be 10000 You know, right. he, he, we don't right. know that. That's why people can't copy because right. they don't know what position size is and don't know what the exit strategy is. He doesn't – he didn't say Bitcoin's the future and it's going to be 100000 He said he's – he's 100%. got – yeah, so it's a trade. It's just a trade for him. No, and that makes that's a really really good point too. And in a trade doesn't have any like you said, he doesn't have a specific time frame on it or a specific profit target that he would want to see it go to. So it is very speculative. And you're right. I feel like even if big money does go into Bitcoin, 
if we're going to move into a digital asset, it's not going to just be Bitcoin. It's not going to be that one way to get you know digital with your money. There's going to be multiple ways you would think, especially if the blockchain becomes more mainstream. But no, that that's really good information, Steve. I, I think that people are going to find a lot of value in that because crypto is a, a touchy subject. You know what I mean? But when you can pull from so many resources and so many people's experiences that you've studied, I feel like you looking back on it now, I feel like even uh, Peter Brandt, he's not a real big Bitcoin guy either. He's a real technical based trader like you. And I think he's not a long-term believer in it, but that doesn't mean I can't get in at four and out at 10K. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just a trade. It's just what other people value something at. It's like all the internet stocks. People made a lot of money. Dan Zanger made a fortune in the dot-com. He didn't say, I'm keeping pets.com. It's going to go to 100. It's the right. future. He just right. pet food. He just traded. He went up, doubled or tripled. He got out. He went on to the next trade. So that's what I think it is. But I don't understand the valuation even as a trade. The speculative bubble of Bitcoin makes sure. absolute no sense. Like the mining cost of electricity it takes to, to right. mine right. them. But they're not mining them forever. Sense. And then they value it based on that. So, you know, we've already so many collapses. And uh, so it reminds me so much of the permabulls of the internet bubble, so much. So, no, and I totally agree. As we, uh, like I said, Steve, I really appreciate the time. I think people are going to love this video. To, to end us here with one last question. If you could give anybody that's new or just getting started in trading any advice with all of the experience that you've studied, what would you tell us? Yeah, just, you know, slow down. The market's going to be there. Focus on compounding your capital over the long term with a quantified trading system that has an edge that you can trade with discipline. And that's what's a business. This is not an ego trip. This is not an opinion. This is not a crystal ball prediction factory. This is just math and a business of trading, selling something for more than you bought it. I love it. Steve, where can everybody find you on the Internet? Uh, my website is NewTraderU, the letter U, NewTraderU.com, and uh, I'm on a Twitter at SJosephBurns. Cool. And I'm also going to put Steve's um, Amazon books in the description as well. So you guys can go check those out. Definitely recommend them. So Steve, thank you again, man. YouTube community, drop the comments down below. Let us know if there's anything you want to ask Steve directly. If you put a comment in, I'll be sure to hit it to him. And then maybe we'll have to bring him on for a second video. But thank you again, Steve. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, great talking to you, Austin. Thank you for listening to Today's Money. If you want to check out the video that goes along with this episode, there's a link in the show notes. Now make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you don't miss any future episodes. And if there's anything that I can do to help you along your trading journey, please reach out to me. My contact info is in the description as well. Thank you very much, and I'll see you in the next episode.